Well, I think you probably would agree with me that we have, uh, I can probably speak for myself, we tend to sentimentalize Christmas pretty well, uh, even making it perhaps on the borderline of being uh, sappy. Uh, You know, of course, that when Jesus was born, uh, it was not like that at all. I mean, when you think about the time in which Christ came into this world, it was it was a time marked with uh, poverty, severe poverty, racism. It was a time marked by um, oppression of governments, enslavement. Uh, th- there was really no security as we would understand security. It was a very dark time in which Christmas began. It's really not dissimilar to many parts of our world today. And, and then God saw fit to bring deliverance through a child, and yet today, deliverance remains the same. Our deliverance is through a child. It's unique that way, that a child would be God's answer to a world that has spun off the rails. Well, you know, we have the Gospel of John that we're looking through, and, you know, the first 18 verses of this Gospel is really called the prologue. It's a big summary of the entire book. And the entire book really is about this idea that God has sent his own son to redeem a world that is in great need of saving. That's really the story of John. He's wanting us to see Jesus as this savior from God, sent to save, sent to deliver. And last week, Nick preached about how this son came as the light, revealing God. Well, the passage following is that Jesus has come as in flesh, not just to dwell among us. That, I hope you will find to be staggering in its own right, but not just to dwell among us, but to display his glory to us and then to deliver to us grace upon grace to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the the forgiveness of our sins that we can again become the people of God. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1. And, you know, Charles Spurgeon said about the incarnation of which we're going to read. He says that it is the, um, that the hinge of history is on the door of the, of the um, Bethlehem stable that this event is critically, it's uniquely... Tommy, can you turn me down a little bit? I feel like I'm echoing up here. Um, That it's uniquely central to this Christian faith. That's perfect, thank you. So John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So so let's just look with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh. I pray that this would fall on you like a hammer. 
The Word became flesh. Now, you know, it's tough to preach around Christmas time because you all know the story. Most of you do. And, and the familiarity kind of dulls us to what I just said. The, 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 I almost pray that we could be like kids again. You know, when you're a kid, you're, you're easily awed and put to wonder over things. Wow comes out of your mouth a lot more when you're a kid than when you are an adult. You kind of know a lot as an adult. But the Word became flesh. You've already seen the Word in verse 1. Charles read it. Let, let me read it again to you. In the beginning was the Word. Now, John is assuming we're Old Testament readers. And, and in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Well, we're going to find out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things made were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, so John is saying this word that was at creation became flesh. This, this word, of course, we know is Jesus. Jesus is with God. He's eternal. He is equal to God. This is, this is staggering at this point. He's equal to God, and he's the one through whom God made all things. This Jesus became flesh. The eternal word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. This idea of becoming flesh, he did not stop being God. His divinity did not increase, but his humanity did increase as if putting on flesh. Interesting, John uses a word, sarx, this old Greek word, which means flesh or the soft tissue. So Jesus, actually, he could have said, John could have written, he became a man, or he came with a body. But he said he put on soft tissue, the flesh. In other words, he wants to use this blunt force to wake us up to the reality that he is fully human. I mean, he's in a womb like us for nine months. I mean, think about it. The infinite crammed into the finite. The eternal squeezed into the temporal. This is the impact of the word becoming flesh, putting on flesh like us. But what John goes on, I mean, you can preach for an hour just on half of 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John could have said he came and lived among us, but he chose dwelt. Why? Well, because again, we're Old Testament readers, right? I think we are. We need to be. Because the word dwelt, that word means tabernacle, or to kind of like pitch a tent as they would. And, and what happened in the Old Testament, of course, is when God would dwell with his people, he couldn't dwell in the midst of them because of his absolute holiness and our absolute sinfulness. And so he dwelt in a tabernacle. It was a tent set up. The pillar of fire would be revealed, the pillar of cloud, that God's presence was there leading, protecting, guiding uh, his people. It was that people could come and seek him for wisdom and see his glory. It was the building of a people for God. And so when John says he came and dwelt among us, he's saying that God himself is tabernacling among, among us, but in a much more personal, in a much more intimate, in a much 
more comprehensive way. God is moving closer to his people. Now, if we were to keep talking, we'd go all the way to Revelation 21, where it says God will again dwell with his people on that final day. God moving toward us. We're not moving, we're terrified of God. But he comes to us in a way that's understandable. But, but it does beg the question, but by the way, this little detail that I just gave you, that he, he dwelt in the flesh, he came, and remember, it says he became flesh, so he wasn't always that way. But what's interesting, this is called, of course, the doctrine of the incarnation. This is immensely important. Athanasius, perhaps you know his name. Um, he was a church theologian of the uh, late 3rd and 4th and century. And he spent his life defending this idea that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. There's no mixture of natures. They're both there together. And he defended this. He spent five different times banished out of his country, fighting Arius, another theologian. It would be a modern-day Jehovah Witness that would be preaching that he became a god. No, he was always God. He just became a man. This is, this is immensely important, but it does beg the question, why would God do this? I mean, to the ancient mind, the idea to the ancient mind was that the body was a prison for the spirit. And so what death did was death released the spirit into infinity. And, and so the desire was to leave the body so that you could be free and infinite. So why would the infinite want to be finite? Why would the one without limit want to be in the limit of a body, subject to the weaknesses and the trials and the stresses that we go through? Why? Well, this is the beauty of the incarnation, is he came to sympathize with us, to comfort us, to explain God to us. This is the beauty of the the struggles that we have, the, the joys, but the trials and the tribulations, the broken relationships, all the hurt that we go through, Jesus Christ has taken on flesh to experience that. Now, Jesus as God understands it intellectually, but he had never walked through it. He had never experienced it. It's like sailing, you know, learning about sailing in theory in a classroom is a whole lot different than sailing and having, you know, the spray of the ocean hit your face on the bow of a boat. He, he, he's come to comfort us. Now, you know in the life of Jesus, he did, in fact, experience these things. I mean, he was born in a no-name place. He had no-name parents. He had a no-name life for the bulk of his life. So he didn't come from status and popularity and position. So those of us that feel like we're really a nobody, he was a nobody in that sense. He, he, he endured misunderstanding, misperception, Deceit, lies, even with his own, even within his own friends, there were power struggles within them. Kind of using him as a position to get ahead, he felt the sting of betrayal, like perhaps many of you have. He suffered fatigue. He he suffered the loss of friends. He he even faced death. In other words. He experienced these things so that he could comfort us. This is the amazing grace of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 that we don't have a high priest who is unlike us, but he can sympathize with us in every way, 
except without sin. So in your moment of crises in life, you can't say, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how I feel. In other words, God is very close to us in the midst of crises because he's experienced it. So so it's not as if you're trying to share some experience with somebody that really has no categories for what you're going through. He knows. It's incredibly comforting to us as we live this life that we have one who can truly sympathize, understand, and comfort us with grace. Uh, But there's something else we see here, too. Why did he come in the flesh? Well, to model for us, to be a model. Jesus is the perfect human. And and he is the one to which we walk. So, So as God sanctifies us from glory to glory, we're becoming really more and more human, less and less inhuman by grace. And he models life for us. He shows us what it looks like to live by faith. He shows us what it looks like to humble himself, to serve, to sacrifice. I mean, you see in the life of Jesus, you read in the teachings of Jesus, you know how to live as you see his life. Now listen, many of us, we don't, you know, whenever I have a, a couple that wants to be married and they go through premarital counseling, I always ask them about their families of origin. I said, what kind of model did you have in terms of being a married couple? And many people say, well, I've had some good models. My parents really did a good job. They really walked out the faith well. They loved each other. They sacri- Others say, well, I, I didn't have both my parents at home. Or others say, well, my parents weren't believers. Or others had a bad experience. And, and I'm really impressed with the generation of the late teens and the early 20s uh, because they are quick to admit we need a model. We don't know how to do this marriage thing. We don't know how to parent. We don't remember being young when our parents parented us, even if they did well. We don't remember it all. We need a model. We need someone to tell us, how do I, how do I act married? What do I do when my wife does this or my husband does this? And, and we need a model. Well, Jesus is that. I mean, he came. We can't model after Jesus in, in the way of atoning for sin, but, but he shows us how to live. He shows us what it means to be human. And we need this. I mean, when you think about the incarnation, I'm still just on the same, on the simple first point. If he came, he became flesh and dwelt among us to sympathize, to comfort, and to model life for us. I mean, are you not amazed at the grace that God would do that? We often would not walk across the street for someone that we don't deem worthy enough. And yet, God, the Word of God, came and dwelt among us. And, and took flesh on and lived like us. I, 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 hope, I hope you, like me, uh, desire the wonderment and the marveling again. There is a mystery here, there's no doubt. I mean, to try to explain the eternal Son of God, it, it's, it's beyond tracing out. But should it not be? Is that, is that not the nature of a miracle, that it's not repeated every day? Is it not the nature of God to be beyond our ability to fully grasp? Augustine, great church father of North Africa in the 4th century said, What you do not understand, treat with reverence and be patient. He says, And what you do understand, cherish and keep. So when we look at the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, there is much to try to understand the two natures 
Again, the first four councils of the church, when the church, after the uh, Constantine kind of unified the Western Empire and, and gave the church a place in society, they had four councils over the first 200 years, 300s to 400s. The first four councils were just trying to nail down who is this Jesus and, and how do the natures relate to it? Is he divine? Is he human? He's both. How do they relate to each other? And what language do we use to speak about him? This is, a, this is of immense wisdom and knowledge of God that we're tapping into right now. So be in awe of God, not just in his magnitude, but in his mercy to take on flesh. So we see that here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the second thing I want you to consider during this time of preparing for Christmas is that Jesus didn't come to just dwell among us in the, in the flesh, but he came to display his glory. Now let me explain that. Look back in 14 with me. It says that we, John, is being an eyewitness, which for us even today in a court of law is the strongest evidence, is an eyewitness. Circumstantial evidence is very strong. But to have a a group of people, we, say, we saw it. That's hard to discount. He says, we have seen or perceived or gazed upon his glory. Now look at the language. He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, John assumes we are readers of the Old Testament. And so when we think about the glory of God, we, our minds would, would migrate back to Exodus 33, to Moses, who Jesus is often compared with, the, the fulfillment of all that Moses said and did and pointed to. But Moses in 33.18 of the book of Exodus says, to God, please show me your glory. That's what he asked for. It's a bold request. God, show me your glory. That's what he asked from God. And here's what God said to Moses. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So it's revelation. God is revealing his glory by displaying his name. He goes, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. This is God speaking in such unilateral fashion. He says, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. He is protecting the life of Moses. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, when we think about the glory of God, I don't want you to think of this ethereal experience with lights. We think about the glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory is really heaviness. It just means the heaviness of God's perfections, that all of God's characteristics are absolutely perfect in every way, beyond tracing out. And, and he is so glorious, so transcendent, so holy, so beautiful, so powerful, that we cannot look on such immensity and live. A, a simple analogy. You know, the sun is brilliant. Our eyes can see it. You know, you look up and you squint. And you Wow, it's really a bright day out today. It's bright, and our eyes can see that. But if you were to stare at the sun, you'd lose your sight. Your eyes 
are not capable of gazing upon such brightness. Well, in a similar way, God's glory is so great, we can't look upon him. And that's what he was telling Moses. You can't see me. I'm so far, far beyond tracing out that it would destroy you. Just in the very next chapter, here's what God says to Moses. He says, or this is what happened. The Lord then descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you hear the grace there, full of grace and truth? But who will by no means clear the guilty? He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third third and fourth generation. This is the truth of his justice. So Moses couldn't see that. And so John then says, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. The same glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John's saying we've seen what Moses couldn't see. We've seen his glory in the flesh. Where did he see this? How did he see this? Well, the transfiguration would be one example. All the Gospels contain the transfiguration. You know, the transfiguration was when, was when the three closest disciples went with Jesus to the top of the mountain. And there Jesus met with Elijah and Moses. And Jesus, it says, was shining in this brilliance of light. Now, it's interesting Um, Moses came down from the mountain after being with God and his face shone with the glory of God. But it was a reflective glory, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. It has no light on its own. But Jesus is intrinsically brilliant and glorious because he's the eternal God. And John said, we saw it in the flesh. But the glory wasn't just displayed on the transfiguration, but also at the cross. The cross was a display of the glory of God. Do you realize that in John 13, 31, uh, Judas leaves to betray Jesus, turn him over to the authorities. So this is the last night of his earthly life before he's crucified. And here's what Jesus says. When he had gone out, that is when Judas had gone out of the room to betray him, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in brilliance and exaltation, but he's also glorified in the humiliation of the Son to redeem a people for himself. So God is glorified in the crushing of the Son to bring back creation and all things back to himself in perfection. This is how he redeems all things, through the glory of a cross. That's why it's, it's so counterintuitive. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. I think this is what he's driving at in the 18th verse here that we read. No one has ever seen God. Again, I just read that to you from Exodus. But the only God, there's some, something different here, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, a place of intimacy and fellowship, has made him known. See, Jesus has come to reveal the glory of God to show people what they could not see when they look at God. Jesus has come to reveal him in glory. So if you want to see God, you look at Christ. The invisible God has come visible for us 
in the flesh. This truth, I think, forces us out of the sentiment, the uh, sentimental view of Christmas. And it forces us to either recognize that glory and worship or reject it. It, it, it forces us in a corner. It, it, there's a kind of a, a word of threat here that it forces us to deal with. To think that we can see God apart from the one that said he has come to explain God is to run crosswise with Christ. In other words, you can, you can learn much about God in the context of creation. You can see his power in the sun. But you can't see the intimacy. You can't see the compassion. You can't see the saving desires of God from creation. Consider yourself an Egyptian soldier. You're chasing after the nation of Israel as they're leaving Egypt. And they're going through the Red Sea that's been parted. And you're an Egyptian soldier and you're looking at that. and You're saying, wow, their God is kind of powerful. Our gods haven't done that lately. And he's a powerful God. But you don't know the saving desire of God. You don't know the compassion. You don't know the mercy. You don't know the long-suffering and the beauty of God. You only see power. That's all you see. You see no personality. Now, when Moses, given the Spirit, records why this happened, then you begin to see. But it had to be revealed. Just like people will affirm, yeah, Jesus died on a cross. But it was Jesus who said, I'm dying for your sins. So, So to know that he died is... I guess historically good, but but it doesn't have any saving import. He died for our sins. So Jesus has come to reveal these truths of God, of how we're to be saved, the fact that we need to be saved. This is why John says, this is a very sobering verse, particularly if you're here and you're interested in Christianity and you want to believe in God, but you're not sure about this Jesus thing. You know, you're not sure about what role does Jesus have. I'm saying that Jesus is instrumental, central to understanding the Father. You cannot understand the glory of God, the greatness of God, apart from the Son. And God has set it up this way in giving a Son. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. That's equality. It's not polytheism, one God. He has expressed himself in three persons. It says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So so to pursue God is to pursue Christ. So that's kind of the threat in this idea of we beheld him. Not a threat, kind of a warning. But how do we hear this as a church? You know, for the Christian here... You belong to this church. How do we hear this with a corporate ear and not just an individual ear? In other words, n- not simply, how do, what, do I, what, what does this sermon have for me, Tom? This is more, what does this sermon have for us? Well, of course, when John says we beheld his glory, the glory, that's the vision of this church, to love God's glory. We're called to both de- to discover and to delight in God's glory. That's what we're called to do. We're called to, as a community, grow in our knowledge of God, which we do by contemplation of the Son. So in other words, if you want to know the tenderness of God, then study how Christ takes the children to his side and loves them and blesses them. If you want to know the mercy of God, then look at Jesus as he's at the dinner with Simon the Pharisee and this prostitute, 
who's repented of her sins, is weeping on his feet, and he accepts and he loves her. I mean, those of us who struggle with, well, God can't forgive me. You don't know the trail of baggage I've left, and you don't know my history, and I've gotten back into my history, and I've fallen out. of. God can't keep forgiving me. Evidently, he can, because his grace is greater than your sin, because you can look at the woman weeping at his feet. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She has peace with God, even though she is horde sinner because of Christ. We see the anger of God when we see Jesus deal with the religious hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, in a few weeks, we'll look at that. He castigates all the religious leaders. You see what God thinks about. You know, Jesus brings more heat to bear against religious hypocrisy than the sinner. Or you see the judgment of God when you see Jesus take the demons, bind them to silence, cast them into pigs, and they rush headlong into the water, and all of them are destroyed. You see a picture of it. You want to see the judgment of God? Look right there. So we hear this as, with a corporate ear. <clears throat> we want to gain in our discovering and delighting of God by virtue of not just preaching. This is one means of us hearing corporately. In Colossians chapter 128, many of you have just finished studying that book. You know, he says, him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing with everyone, to present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, there's a public ministry that we all need to hear the same thing, so we're all growing in the same area. And yet it's not just from the pulpit here, it's also from brother to sister and sister to sister. Because in Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. It's the same language that comes from the pulpit, it's just to be coming from you to one another. And, And here we are trying to encourage greater discovery of God in Christ and, and greater delighting. That's how we grow in this beholding. But there's more. We aren't just called to anymore as the church. We're called to not just discover and delight, but we're also called to demonstrate it. You know, the church is called to display the wisdom of God, but also display the glory of God. Do you realize the church is to be this supernatural group? So in other words... Gathering as a group is no big deal. I mean, if we have a Carolina Panthers football game on and someone's got a big screen TV, they can invite people over. I mean, regardless of what color you are, what age you are, educational background, financial security, it doesn't matter. We can all watch the game and we want to see the, the Panthers play. I mean, we can get groups together around fixing motors, watching games, planting shrubs. We can get clubs on anything. The church is to be different. It's a good book I've been reading, actually, Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlap. And they're arguing that the church, by virtue of our diversity, and yet our love for one another built in Christ and the gospel, that we are to be a supernatural community. And what's supernatural about the church is we actually love people that we may not like that much. But we're going to sacrifice for them because we see that in our forgiveness of sin, God has given us mercy and grace that they have also received. And so we're drawn to people now not based upon demographic similarities. We're drawn to people because of Christ. And and that does not draw people together outside of the church. This is to be a church that is supernatural. What holds us together is this divine good news that God has saved us in Christ. That's what pulls us together. 
Not the fact that, and churches gather around demographic similarities. You can go to certain churches, they have 20-something church, and this is more of rock music church, and this is a kind of a more senior, polished, you know, highbrow church. So, so, you know, churches gather around demographic similarities all the time. Nothing supernatural about that. But supernatural is when we, what's supernatural is when we get a picture of ourselves, we see that God has forgiven us, we are overwhelmed with love for him, and that love spells out the people who are different than us, but are in the same need as us. And so, boom, we come together. And so we have a church that has demographic dissimilarity, but we have this massive unity around a son, an eternal word that has become flesh. That's what, when we say we beheld his glory, that's the transformation power that should take place in a church that worships that eternal word. The third thing we see, and I see this in 16, and I wish I could stay here longer, but, but Jesus has come not just to dwell with us, to comfort us, and, and to model for us, he's also come to display his glory that we might be a people like him. Remember in First John, he says, when you see him, you're going to be like him. That's what we're marching towards. But the third thing he did is he came to deliver to us this grace, or as he says, grace upon grace. This is really an incredibly difficult verse. For from, look at 16 with me, if you would, please. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus has come not in judgment. You do realize that Jesus, as the eternal word, the creator and sustainer of all things, could have come and just brought judgment to us. He could have. He could have just come back to his creation and said, all of my creation has rebelled against me. I will destroy them all. But he didn't. He came with grace. He came with favor and kindness and mercy. That is to be marveled over. And, and I, I hope you're thankful with me over the grace that we've been given. But look at what he does in 17, because it helps us understand 16. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's kind of doing a compare and contrast right here. Moses brought a law, but Jesus brought grace. Now, I want to make sure you understand, the law was not void of grace or truth. Uh, there is truth in the law. God's character is declared. You see grace in the law, right? You see the promises given. You see the sacrificial system pointing to a Savior. You see the, the, um, the serpent lifted up, which saved people, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, you know, kind of pointing to a Savior that will save, who is also lifted up, except this time on a cross. And so the law had grace and truth with it. But it only witnessed to the grace and the truth. It only pointed to it. But in Christ, you have grace and truth in reality, in flesh, right before us. He is full of grace and truth. And this grace is seen most clearly in his life and his death and his resurrection and in his continuing ministry right now. He is giving grace for us to see God. We need this grace John says we've all received this grace to behold his glory. Grace is needed to see God. Now, let me just try to explain uh, what this, how this grace operates, if you will. 
You know, first, this grace helps us to see that we are not who we think we are. No, the grace helps us to see that we are not who we think we are. We, we give ourselves passing grades all the time whenever we come up on any test. We do. We tend to think um, we're really pretty good. There's this one uh, tweet from a pastor. He says, um, how ba-, he asks the question, how bad do you think your sins need to be for God to condemn you? The answer to that is generally just a little bit worse than mine have been. We, we, we tend to always just put it on the other side. It, it, it's, we, we aren't that bad. But then when you see Jesus, the eternal word in flesh, he's like a mirror to us. I think I'm a pretty patient person. I really do. Don't ask my kids. But I think I'm a pretty patient person. But then you see Jesus and you have pure patience. And you realize, I'm really not that patient. I, I think I'm a fairly loving person. But then I see Jesus and I realize, I'm really not that loving. I'm, I'm really not. I, I, I think that I, I'm willing to sacrifice for people. But, but then I see Christ and I realize, I really don't even know what sacrifice is. One who lays down his life, the eternal word becoming flesh, I, I, don't, I don't know what sacrifice is. And, and, so, and, and so this grace helps me to see I'm really not who I think I am. I, I want to give myself passing grades all the time, but, but, but next to Jesus, it, it helps cut through the fog of my self-delusion, my self-importance. That's grace. Because I lived a long time deluded as to who I was. And I know that many of you would say the same thing. So that's grace that we would see that we're really not who we think we are. But it's also grace to see that he really is who he says he is. It's the grace of God to see Jesus is really as he says he is. In other words, John's already said no one's seen God. Paul in Romans 3 says no one seeks God. So how did you see him as he is? How did you come to believe that he is as he is? I mean, think about in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says this was to display the glory of God. The Pharisees see it. They see him come out of the tomb. You think it's a slam dunk. It's a deal. No way. They walk away plotting to kill him. They see the glory of God. They have eyes, but they don't see. So why do you see Jesus is as he says he is? Because of grace. We've all received grace. If you're a Christian, it is by God's grace that you see Christ as glorious. And that alone should cause us to rejoice over Christmas, to rejoice over him, to be thankful to God, to be filled with gratitude. Why do I see that? I have family that don't. And it's a word of the non-Christian. If you don't see Christ as glorious, if you don't see him as he says he is, ask God for eyes to see. You will never discern, discover, or work your way to it apart from God moving with mercy. The the third thing we see here, I think, and and that's why Paul says, you know, we are saved by grace, not by works. It's by grace we've been saved, not through works. It's a gift of God so that no man may ever boast. And the, the third thing we see here is that this grace also just doesn't help us to see that we're not who we think we are and that he is who he thinks he is, but also that it sustains us and, and will grow us and move us into being like Christ. You see that idea of fullness? You know, to draw grace from Christ no more depletes him than you going down and taking a coffee mug to the Atlantic and pulling out a mug. It, it, it doesn't deplete. 
his resources. And, and it says grace upon grace. What John's trying to do in that kind of awkward phraseology is say that his grace just keeps coming in successive waves. God to his children just gives grace after grace. It's like when you go to the beach. I love going to the beach and sleeping with the door open and hearing the waves just pound 24-7. Rainer, sun, rain, day, night, summer, winter. You just hear those waves. Boom. Boom. It never stops. It's the idea of God giving grace to his people. We can come to him for this grace to live lives that are transformed, that are changed. Our marriages are strengthened. Our families are brought to a greater knowledge of Christ. So so here we have, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, Jesus has come to dwell with us in the flesh, to comfort us, to comfort us and to model for us. And by the way, there's a warning there. He came to establish a footprint. You know, many people will live their lives, you know, with different philosophies. You may be socially liberal and you think people are just naturally good. And if we improve education or economic opportunities, then we're going to get along pretty well in this world one day. Some want to live more, more socially. You know, they're more socialists and believe in socialism. Well, if we just collectively work together and share the wealth from the rich and the poor and kind of put it all in a pond and, and we'll live from that, then we'll be better. That's their philosophy. If we can just do that, that's going to bring us to a place of deliverance. And Other people are just pure capitalists. If I just got to get a job. I got to make my money. I got to get a secure future. And if that's the place, then I'm living large. And, and that's my philosophy of life. Christianity doesn't have that. It's not an ideology. It's built upon the person. And he has come, and his footprint, no legitimate historian would deny the reality of Christ living on this earth. He's put footprints in the earth. And that puts us all on notice, right there. So he's come to dwell among us. He has come to display his glory, and he's come to give grace to those who ask. So let's just take a minute as, as we prepare for communion. And let me just pray for us that... Um, Yeah, your souls will be enlarged with affections for God. Let me ask him for that, Father. uh, Your word is clear to us that we have received grace, and we thank you for that. I do pray for those who are yet in this room who need to receive the grace to see that they are not who they think they are and that he really is who he says he is, that they might turn and repent. Father, would you... Would you grant that grace, converting grace? And Father, would you also grant grace to us, grace upon grace for those of us who are in crises, that we would sense your closeness, your comfort, and your sympathy. But not just sympathy from a distance, but you are close to us by your Spirit, enabling us, Father, to seek stronger marriages, to seek stronger parenting deepen friendships, to cross and develop relationships with people in this church that are not like us, just to display the supernatural nature of this church. Father, would you do these things for your glory? Would you reveal to us your glory in your Son? Would you do that for us, that our hearts would swell with affections for you and that our obedience would then be birthed out of love and not a sense of duty or a sense of fear, but a sense of love, that we could truly love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, so that we could love our neighbor as deeply and passionately as we love ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.